This is Luke Gygax. Do you believe that the mechanics of combat are not the key to heroic fantasy and adventure games? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Save or Die. want to screw that up again um are you planning on asking me what the save or die email oh yeah yeah is yeah again? yeah yeah no, hang on let me type that bad boy down now okay so <laughs> oh yeah he'll come to me and it's like what was the secret uh yeah what's uh, your character's motivation mike and he's like uh, uh, i don't remember and i just totally blanked you know <laughs> i don't know i've slept since then leave me alone Chowdy, everybody. It's SaverDie95, where we have class. <laughs> Theoretically. Theoretically. With me is DM Jim. Greetings, programs. And DM Liz. Hi there. And we're here to talk about the various classes that we have used in D&D, either allowed as DM or played as PCs. I've got to admit, I've... I've Personally, I, it's been the DM side of thing for me, mostly. Alternative classes, though, right? Non-traditional? Yeah, yeah. This is some um, stuff, you know, whether it was in Dragon Magazine, Strategic Review, or, you know, like some of the Complete Alchemists books, or, you know, that sort of thing. Because over-the-top classes did not start with 3rd edition, everybody. I have to say that, as much as I love old school. <laughs> but anyway... Before we get to that juicy bit of data, what have we been doing in gaming? Jim. Wow, I have done no gaming this week. I, <gasps> I, I have written a bunch of gaming and edited a bunch of audio for podcasts. I, I, well, would, I would say I was courting burnout, but I think it's more truthful to say I took her out for dinner and a show and woke up in bed with her this morning. But no gaming. Well... You've been doing gaming-related work, so I think that counts. I mean, I can give it the old what I bought in gaming this week. I got the basic D&D starter set, and I got my hands on that uh, uh, retro clone Warriors of the Red Planet. The guy let his beta rules out, out the gate. So I ordered it on Lulu, and it's like the 2014 version of the old TSR Warlords of Barsoom. You could you could take it was really funny we were doing the seven voyages of Xylarth in the last episode because you could take this Warriors of Red Planet and uh, the seven voyages and have yourself a campaign. I think I'm going to do it too. What is Warriors of the Red Planet anyway? Uh, it's an OD&D compliant uh, retro clone uh, based on Grice Burroughs by Al Crombach. and the ah. uh, print and PDF rules you can get from his website and Lulu right now are just the beta version. It's good enough. 
he put it out there so, so you could it's cheap it's like five bucks mm-hmm. for a big thick paperback and if you find typos you get to tell them yay i'm, I'm good <laughs> go at that. ahead and put make sure it's in the show notes um liz what have you been doing in gaming this week well um our um, usual second edition group um this yesterday uh we've got someone staying over for the week an old college friend of ours rita and she joined the game yesterday with us um and a lot of you will be very happy to know mead has returned to the gaming group oh it's the return of mead that's right there will be more mead stories very very soon the the orphan slaying social climbing halfling molester am i forgetting anything um let's see orphan slang halfling molesters okay no i i think you I think you've covered all the important think, parts you've covered all the, the um, important she, oh, oh adopted, orc baby adopted yeah adopted the orc baby so. i mean orc all you baby. got all you got to say now is she's got red hair and i'm moving to denton um, <laughs> you, you will have to fight chase because for the she, honor because she does have red hair but yeah she is engaged to our our dm at this point and you you would have to you would have to do battle with DM Chase. Each of you carrying D and D books going into the Thunderdome. Yeah, no thanks. Flinging fools <laughs> at one another, you know. Yeah, yeah. Never rub another man's rhubarb. That's what I learned. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Words to live by. So yeah, um, Mead has joined us back up at least for the summer. She may have to drop out again once the fall semester starts. But she's feeling pretty confident. She plans on graduating at the end of the year, and she's feeling pretty confident that once that is over with, um, she is hoping to be able to come back to the game on a more permanent basis at that point. So, Meet has returned. We had Rita in for a little while, so we had a pretty full table yesterday. And we finally made it to the temple, and we're going through and wreaking havoc and nearly getting our asses kicked by a bunch of damn troglodytes, of all things. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's where we are in our game so far. Ironically, Preston, the guy who plays the paladin with the horse Widowmaker, when we went into the game yesterday, first thing he said is, I just started listening to Save or Die and my first episode I happened to choose was the one where you talked about my horse. Yeah, where <laughs> how he talked about how he got Widowmaker. <laughs> he thought it was great. Oh, yeah. That was a good story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Preston, he fumbled again yesterday. He did not fling the sword into my character for once, but I was waiting for it, though. As soon as he rolled that one, it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> I I thought for sure I was going to be impaled yet again, but no. <laughs> He's the flying paladin. His horse he, flies, his swords fly. I know. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> It's destined. It's destiny for him to Yeah, but why is it always the sword's always hitting you? Um for I am a magnet and he is steel, I don't know. <laughs> Something. Do you always sit in the same chair at the table? This, yeah, we do tend to sit in right the same across spots. From him. 
Because when I'm game mastering, I'll just roll it. I'll count around. I'll roll a die and count around. And I've got a D five that loves to roll four. I've noticed that. So if you're sitting at my table in the four spot, you get it a lot. I think if he goes clockwise, Liz would be the three. I'd be the four. One, two, three. Yeah, yeah. Up until this point, if he was, yeah, Tim Preston, me, and you. Hey, that's why he didn't hit you because Rita was in and threw off the numbers. Ah. Uh-huh. See, there you yeah. go. Well, he didn't. He the way Preston rolled for his fumble, he did not actually lose his weapon this time, oh. and that was why oh, I didn't get hit. He just had to do a dex save, and did the the battle equivalent of sliding on a banana peel. <laughs> okay, so that was that. And only thing I'll add as far as. I go, uh, my situation goes, Chase uh, bought the 5e starter set and loaned it to me to scan so I can try and reading it. I haven't yet, but I, I, I looking at it, it's just in a skim. It, I feel like it's one of those games that it's not going to be my preferred game. But, you know, if I happen to be at a com- convention and somebody's running a one-off of it and I don't have anything else to do, yeah, I'll probably, I'd probably get into it. It's not bad. Which I, I mean, especially which, for what it's trying to be, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, and, you know, if, if the monster stat blocks hold together, like in this uh, starter set, I can see myself buying modules and supplements that are 5e and be able to convert them to classic D&D on the fly. My only bang on it, and it's just because it's me, is that the rule books that came in the starter set were printed like they were magazines. So it just had a magazine cover instead of a cardstock cover, and you know what I want. I want it to be like it was 30 years ago. Exactly. (sighs) Oh, well. I guess we should be thankful they've paid that much attention to the OSR. Well, do we have emails? Oddly enough, yes. Get down. Save or die. Email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man. One episode I need to do that and you go, no, we have no No, no emails. At all. <laughs> all right. I, well, I'm not sure them. anyone would believe us though. Okay, okay. Well, our first email is from Robert Fisher. Robert and Fisher. Robert writes, "Hey, sodcasters." Oh, no, just, him for Dragon's Foot. <laughs> just heard the discussion about the top five on episode ninety-two, and here are my thoughts. Oh, uh, here we go. <laughs> With the previous format, you'd have a great discussion that evolved organically during the first segment. Then you'd go through each of the other segments, only to realize you had already talked about everything in the first segment. <laughs> Sometimes you'd try to keep the discussion from going where it wanted to go in order to try to fit it into the format. The top five format is better than that. I don't really have a problem with it, but I think it isn't needed. You don't need to fit the conversation into any format. Here's what I suggest. You each make a list of the things you want to talk about concerning the topic. Things you like, things you don't like, and other. No specific number of items needed. 
Then you just talk about the topic and let the conversation flow organically. When you get to a stopping point, you each look through your lists and see if there is anything that didn't come up yet, and if so, bring it up. Once everything on everyone's list is done, or you're out of time, you're done. It's essentially the same as the top five, but less structured. Of course, I have no experience actually making a podcast, so maybe it wouldn't work, but there it is. In any case, I've listened to a lot of RPG podcasts, but Save or Die is the only one that always remains in my subscription list, so you're already doing something right. Robert. I don't know, man, about less structure on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we appreciate the email, uh, Robert, but here's my thought. For one thing, I know Jim does it too. I don't know about Liz, but... I never do that. I thought so. Well, that's not what I heard. I don't even I don't even know what it is yet, and I'm probably guilty. Yep. <laughs> when it comes time for our top fives, we usually make a list that has more than five things on it. That way, if, say, Jim happens to take one of mine, I've got something else I can slide in there. But you'll still say, versa. you stole mine! Oh, well, yeah, it's still fun. <laughs> but, yeah, um... I, I know there's an advantage to conversations going organically, and you can come up with some really good ideas that way. The downside to it, though, in my experience, is either A, you get way off topic, and you're ended up, you know, how did we end up talking about aluminum soda cans? We started on dragons. <laughs> and we never do that on this podcast. <laughs> ever, ever. And two, we do have to keep the shows below two hours, and... We can find ourselves chatting for like an hour, hour and a half, and then realize, oh, we're still on the first segment, you know? <laughs> so we'll, maybe we can try to loosen up top five a bit more, but I think, unfortunately, we do need to keep some sort of structure. Otherwise, it's dogs and cats living together, mass, mass hysteria. hysteria. <laughs> it's true. Real biblical stuff. <laughs> yep. All right, next email. Okay. Well, our next email is from David Lynch. Woohoo! And David writes, Hello, save or die. I just listened to the con episode <laughs> and I had a question about etiquette. And I can already tell someone's going to beat me out because I'm about to read from the letter. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a nice way of telling someone, don't be a dick? Or is it just a time to remember that life is short and you may never have to see that person again? I have ignored the behavior to avoid confrontation and been dissatisfied with my own inaction. What do you think? Also, I remember an episode when Jim and Mike discussed the initiative system in Eldritch Wizardry. I've been studying the Little Brown Book's alternate system using the six-segment action chart with pre- and post-segments for exceptionally fast characters, and also an article on attack priority from Dragon Number 71, which uses a single die roll and smoothly integrates multiple attacks in a single round, but does not include spellcasting. I want, and my players have requested, something a little more tactical using weapon speed, casting time, and the character's dex and encumbrance. I have two systems written out, and we're going to test them the next game. 
cutting to the chase. Finally, this made me wonder if any of you have used other initiative or tracking systems other than the books. Have you used any outside systems in your own games for resolving something because you weren't satisfied with the system by the book? I would appreciate your viewpoints. Thanks, David. Thanks. All right, over to you guys first. Um, I don't know that I have a nice way of telling someone to be nice. Um, <laughs> I I gotta admit, I tend to all to I tend to act on ignoring the behavior to avoid confrontation, and because I'm I'm really not much of a confrontational sort of individual, and unfortunately, it does a lot of times leave you later kind of going, you know, it's like, why do I have to put up with this? I should not be so nice. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I tend to be the ignore the behavior and you, you'll probably never see that person again. And mm. if you do, try not to get in a game with them at the con. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure there is a, a, a nice way, but I don't know. I think I tend to think most people, when they are being annoying, they genuinely don't realize that they are being annoying. And if you have a really nice, subtle way of trying to tell them don't be annoying, it may be too subtle for them to even realize that you're doing it because they have no idea that they're doing anything that has annoyed you in the first place. So I don't know. Um, I'm not a lot of help. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, when I say don't be a dick to somebody, that is me taking the nice way. Because <laughs> I'm a potty mouth at the gaming table. Sometimes I have to watch it because uh, we play in a game store and there are kids there and I have to be sure and you know keep it on a leash. It's true. Jim's almost as bad as Liz. Beep, well, beep, beep, and beep. Well, right. That's why we can't do the live, the live play podcast when we were all gaming together. And <laughs> yeah, the actual D&D. play. Yeah, yeah, because I'll just... Yeah. I don't. I don't well, have the, fr- the frontal lobe speed to substitute the word frock. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've been when I was younger, I would be more. Uh, I mean, I'm an introvert, so I would just you know sit there and stew and let it go and let it go till I lost my temper, which is no way to do it. I find it more useful to just be straightforward with the person. And if it's something, I mean, if it's my gaming group and everybody knows me and they're already used to me, everybody takes it with a grain of salt. It's no big deal. But if it's a con or something where I don't know people and I'm really having a personal issue with somebody, I would take them to the side and discuss it privately so as not to get the testosterone flowing with public embarrassment and then and then say hey don't be a dick um yeah i i think that kind of plays with me um when i was younger i was actually a lot more tolerant of different behaviors um as i've gotten older i've just maybe it's because i've gotten finickier but i'm less tolerant with that sort of behavior however at a con you're kind of by by running a con game, you're kind of expecting that you're going to lose a certain amount of control of who signs up for your game. And fortunately, like say at North Texas, I have yet to run a game of anything where somebody's been a real problem. Um, I think part of that is at oh. North Texas, let's face it, you know, the median age tends to be people in their 30s. And there's less of that teenage... <laughs> hormonal you know mood swings going on but yeah i would probably say that if you 
feel like you literally cannot wait the mandatory four to six hours until the game is over and you can tell the person goodbye. Jim's situa- description is probably best. Pull them aside privately. You can even make it under the uh, aegis of like something is happening specifically with his character. And then while there, you go, now look, you know, could you please stop doing this? This is annoying or you're upsetting, you know, the other players or whatnot. And if that doesn't work, kill his character. That's very helpful if you're the DM. What if you're a player, and this is another player, and they're really getting on your well, nerves? Then you're really up to the it's it's up to the DM to control their game because the, if, if hmm? the last time this happened in a public game where the guy was just getting on the last nerve of everybody else at the at the table, I just quietly prepared to kill his character, and he saw it coming and and decided his wife needed to, him to go give her a ride somewhere before it happened. whatever works (laughs) so there you have it if you're the dm take them aside privately if you're a player kill kill their character (laughs) (laughs) so next email um well no hang on initiative yeah oh yeah oh yeah initiative um so you have you guys used any other initiative or tracking systems? I can pretty easily say I tend to generally go more or less by the book. Um, I can't recall having specifically used a different initiative system and going, I really like this better. I've used D10 and instead of the D6, but you know, I, I always figured that that's better for say a d and d than d and d because then you've got casting times and everything that will affect and weapon speeds yeah and and that's the thing when i'm running a game i don't want to fool with weapon speeds and stuff so i your your players would probably not be too keen on my on my gaming style it sounds like cuz they're wanting to incorporate the weapon speed and the decks and the encumbrance and everything. And I just don't get that crunchy. So usually the by-the-book stuff, you know, for initiative and speed tends to work for me. Yeah, I'm not crunchy initiative-loving at all. So my, you know, what I do isn't going to help anybody because I don't even, I mean, I have them roll initiative uh, per side until they get up to second or third level. So if it's like level zero, level one, it's just one die per side. Keep mm-hmm. it as simple as possible because at the higher levels, all hell starts breaking loose. A couple of Saturdays ago, we had a five-way spell duel in the middle of initiative. And about Ooh. broke my brain trying to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a lack of patience in my old age. The simpler, the better for me. But it sounds like yeah. the system Dave's cooking up might be sweet. Yeah, yeah, and we'd be interested to hear of the two systems that you've written out, you know, which one worked out better for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, send us a send us a letter and so we'll so I can keep asking Liz if there's emails and she can say yes. <laughs> well, and we can and, sh- share the crunchy rules with the crunchy rules lovers. Exactly. All right. Next email. All righty. Our next email is from DM Mothshade. Moth. And Moth writes, Dear Sodbusters. <laughs> Why do Mothshade I think there should again? be like a banjo in the background? <laughs> Dear Mothshade again, I'll keep this short ish and to the point ish. 
Though I've contributed some freelance work to Ninth Level Games, home of the Hungry Hungry Kobolds, and TPK Games of Pathfinder Infamy, my one true love has always been old-school D&D of all flavors. After running the idea past the generous and patient DM Liz, I come to you with, do you have any suggestions or insights for breaking into the OSR publishing industry? No, I don't mean on my own. With your backgrounds, experiences, contacts, and combined intelligence scores, I've no doubt you could offer some helpful hints for querying, submitting to one or more established OSR entities. I've done work for free for the love of the game. I intend to do lots more. Along the way, I'd like to make a wee bit of coin for some of my efforts, and am very interested to know if there are any companies or publishers that are amenable to freelance inquiries. Also, if there are some that have any kind of a soft spot for polished, semi-pro fan material. Since composing the original text for this email, I've managed to wrangle a writing gig offer for GP Adventures. This was accomplished mostly by making friends with the esteemed Mr. Benoit Poiré. Is is that right? Uh, Did I totally screw that up? I I say it Benoit Poirot. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> You're probably correct. Um, anyway. DM Jim is Saver Die's official stunt pronouncer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Moth goes on to say, can't wait to hear the pronunciation on this one. Woohoo! <laughs> um, through the bleh, through my position as the owner-moderator of the only AD&D First Edition Facebook group, after a Skype chat with over to you, Jim. Oh, Monsieur Perrat. <laughs> Il est très magnifique et c'est formidable. N'est-ce pas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What he said. <laughs> and Ernie Gygax, fanboy buzzing all the way, I was welcomed into the fold. Though many of the TSR old guard are very active and generous online, I find myself reluctant to approach any of them in this way. Still, there must be some avenues to try. Some apples to polish, some saves to be made, some heinies to smooch. I can also let my writing speak for me, I suppose. Your thoughts would be of great interest. Thanks for everything. DM Mothshade, David A. Hill. Oh, sweet. It sounds like he's already doing what I would tell him to do, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, blog and write stuff and put it up online and then use that as a stepping stone to approach some of the indie publishers. Yeah. yeah. And I, I seriously do understand, you know, being reluctant to approach TSR old guard people. You know, you've got that, oh, you know, I'm not worthy. But, you know, as you say, they're very actor- active and generous online, and they are all just as active and generous in person. Um, I can't think of anyone who would not, you know, be happy to take some time to, you know, talk to you about doing some stuff. Um, I do know that, well, I don't know how big they are into getting new talent, but I think, you know, Inner City Games has 
always been, you know, a very friendly bunch and they work, they tend to work closely with Eldritch Enterprises people. Um, there, there's a lot of crossover between the two companies, Inner City and Eldritch End. So, I mean, they might be a good source to, you know, send a query letter to and, that's all I got. You know, it's like I'd say, don't be afraid to talk to them because yeah. they are super, super nice. And and on a side note, um, I don't know how capable you are of going to conventions, but you can always go to a convention and find, you know, especially ones that you know a certain OSR publisher is going to be at. Go there, go to their table, and just talk to them. All they can do is say thanks, but no thanks. And most of the guys, whether it's Troll Lord or Pace Setter or, you know, Frog God, any of these people, you know, they're really nice folks. So, you know, you shouldn't have any trouble there. It takes a but, lot of persistence. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, keep going. Uh, it just takes a lot of persistence and a lot of creativity and a willingness to just keep pitching is what I discovered because I, I picked the company I wanted to do work with and spent a year pitching ideas to anybody that would listen. And it was like the uh, South Park episode where at the end of every little bit it was Simpsons already did it. You know, everything I pitched, I'm like, well, that was DCC Adventure number seven. We did that. And I'm just like, okay, damn. All right. And I just regroup and do a new pitch until finally I got one in past the goalie. Yeah, and um, just a couple of North Texas cons ago, it wasn't last year's, but I think it was year before last's, um, Trebor's daughter, um, just by virtue of being in a game with, you know, some of the guys, I can't remember if it was Frog God or if it was, you know, someone else, but they noticed her drawing you know, she had her sketchbook at the game table with them. She was doing some character sketches of the character she was playing, and they wanted to sign her up to do some art for them. So, you know, I think being there with them and, you know, if you possibly can, um, and interacting with them can go a very long way. You know, they always talk about, you know, it's who you know, and it sounds very unfair. And to an extent, it is kind of unfair. But I I think that's a very valid point. If you can possibly interact with them, even if it is just through Facebook, you know, because that wound up working for you, too. But Facebook, meet them in person, you know, it's it's really, I think that's going to be a, a good avenue to go through. That's a good point, because even when they tell you no or we don't have anything right now, every time they do that, you're, it's a building stone in establishing a relationship with that particular publisher. Liz, you just reminded me, my relationship with Goodman Games started with a playtest adventure where I just was sitting off on the side sketching one of the monsters that hadn't been illustrated for the adventure yet, and the DM, recall, goes, you should send that in to Joseph Goodman. And so I you know, inked it up and sent it in, and he was, I just sent it to info at goodmangames.com, and he was the nicest guy, he responded, he goes, this is great, we may use it, we may not, we'll get back and let you know, and then Jeff easily dropped some atom bomb illustration on top of that monster, <laughs> and it never saw the light of day, but that was me getting to know Joseph Goodman for the first time. You know, the second conversation, the third conversation, he starts to know who I am, and that's how yeah, it starts. Yeah, your name, and... It's like, oh, yeah, I, I know that guy. We haven't used any of his stuff yet, but he's been just awfully nice every time we've spoken, you know. And Well, that's important, too, is to be, yeah. be, be professional and respectful and don't go psycho on anybody. And a side note, I'm sure I don't need to say this, 
but I will anyway, just in case there's some new listeners who might get the wrong idea. We bit of coin is the operative term here. Uh, don't quit your J job. I don't know anybody who runs a even runs a game company and does it full time outside of Watsi. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're either retired. And so you've got income coming in from, you know, other stuff already, or you've got a day job and you're doing this on the side. Um, many, many years ago, and I cannot remember what little publication this was in, but Mike and I talk about it all the time, you know. Decades ago, someone had made a little cartoon, and it is still true today. It's like, you too can make hundreds of dollars a year in the lucrative field of game design. <laughs> it was in the uh, Murphy's Rules from Space Gamer Magazine ah, okay, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were talking about war games, but it still applies across the board. I came back from North Texas Con, and my brother and I were sitting out back at work smoking, and he's like, so, how's it feel to be starting to get famous in this industry? And I'm like, yay, I'm famous in the fair-headed stepchild niche end of a dying industry. <laughs> <laughs> that and 50 cents might get me a soda if I find a really good machine. <laughs> so, doing it for the love of the game is a good place to start. Small and niche, we will hope not dying. I meant, like, print industry print in general oh okay the print yeah well yeah i'm still waiting for that paperless office they've been promising me for 30 years if it happens at all it'll be after we're dead probably all right any more emails yes all right our next email is from tom hey tom and tom writes hey i was just wondering how you handle naval combat in your basic D&D games I use these rules from Blog of Holding, and he gives a link to the rules in question. But I'm interested to hear how you would handle it. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, I'll tell Liz, you. you, you don't take this first. Liz and I can answer in unison. Ready? We don't. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> it, naval combat makes my head hurt, just like mass army combat makes my head hurt. And I try to make sure that it never happens in my games if I can possibly avoid it. <laughs> okay. My point. I used to use an old Avalon Hill board game called Trireme, which was based on galley combat in the ancient world. But as I've gotten older and the vision's gone skewy, I uh, tend to use a modified version of the sea machine from the companion mincer companion rules um only less crunchy i looked at these rules he was talking about at blog of holding mm -hmm. and on the whole they're pretty cool um they're pretty simple they basically treat a ship like as if it were a more or less a dnd character with hit points armor class etc cetera, etc cetera. um I could probably use that. I think that would fall apart if it got into what amounted to a fleet action. But, you know, ship versus ship, this would be fine. Um, my only gripe about it is you had to do a critical hit to attack another ship's sail. Especially with deployed sail, that's half the ship. I mean, how do you have to get a critical hit to hit that? But 
you know, that can easily be tweaked, and that's a personal preference. So it's a good system, but yeah, I would be the only one to actually fight it out probably. Liz would probably, you know, if the ship was supposed to sink, it sinks. If not, it gets where it's going. Have a nice day. <laughs> I, I would abstract it as much as possible with just reports coming into the actual player characters in the party and then let them run amok and do their player character thing, which will be, you know, magic users polymorphing into dragons and trying to sink ships and stuff. Let, let them have at that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably I would try in my own games, I would try to keep things to a, say, a one-on-one um ship to ship combat and not have you know a fleet attacking another fleet anything like that and yeah probably the way i would be handling it would be you know i would probably the ship would have hit points and people would do damage i'd make it it would be very cinematic i suppose in my description of what was happening and you know there there would it would it would tend to be very non-crunchy altogether. Just like, okay, well, you know, now you're sinking. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that helps, Tom, but there you are. <laughs> That's a nice little rule set, though, to his link. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. All right. Our final email is from DM Bad Mike. Oh, no. What do we do now? <laughs> It says, read on air if you want. Not if you dare. (laughs) Okay. So, Bad Mike says, the wrap-up show, so great it it was two sessions long. Thanks for the kind words. Not much to add, except I was sorry to miss the podcast. It has been a very busy month. We had to do con wrap-up and decompression from a solid month or more of living, eating, drinking, and breathing in TRPG Con. Then I injured my leg. Then we had to move four storage units into our new NTRPG Con warehouse. So there was a lot on our mind. I think you guys did okay without me. You seem to know what you're doing by now. <laughs> Can you imagine if Bad Mike had been on the show? It would have been three episodes long. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, he goes on to say a couple of points. DM Glenn, they don't make devil costume speedos. They make sexy devil outfits. But frankly, that would have to have a more svelte form, shall we say, to pull that one off. Remember, I want people to attend the midnight auction, not avoid it. <laughs> not to be permanently blinded for life. <laughs> yes. I have the body of a 21-year-old. He's in the back in formaldehyde. He <laughs> <laughs> says, yes, we are having this again since I had such a good time. I made do with sequined red horns and the cape. Next year, I'm adding a tail. In a few years, we'll be up to cloven hooves if I play my cards right. Glad you got your chance to run a game and hope you do again next year. You know, that sounds like a potential victorious character. Yeah. But anyway. (laughs) And speaking of, he goes on to say, DM Good Mike, I'll take your suggestion about having pre-registration members have the option to register 24 hours early to death. And we'll see what we can do. 
Also, you didn't say a word about you running victorious. Learn to self-promote, my good sir. Hope you run it again next year and have copies of the rules to sell. Yeah, I got a feeling you're not getting off the hook, Mike. Mm. So do I. <laughs> I hope next year. <laughs> but um, I will be running it no matter what. DM Jim, the comment you made about the entire con being about family is dead on. We wouldn't do it if we weren't enjoying the company of the people that attend. I have several people I only see face-to-face once a year that I consider true friends, and all four of you are in that number. I hate when it's over because it'll be a year before I see everyone again. It's hard work, but it's worth it. Not true. We had dinner with him just a few days ago. (laughs) DM Liz, so glad you got to play Jasmine with Darlene. Got to wear a leather corset in mixed company and got to attend my B1 game again in what I say was the absolute funniest in search of the unknown game I have ever run at the con. It was great sharing the laughs with you and Glenn. Bollock lives. (laughs) Sorry about the food situation. It was handled much better than last year, but there were still a few glitches, especially you not getting your breakfast tickets until the last day. (laughs) What we failed to let a lot of people know was that you didn't even need the tickets for the breakfast buffet. Wearing a badge was supposed to get you the discount on food, ticket or not. The hotel seems to be getting more and more attuned to what we want, and having the con there again next year, year three at the Marriott, we are hoping even more of the speed bumps are worn away. Next time, if you have a problem, let us know and we'll get it taken care of. Just please keep Glenn from falling over yet again. The hotel's insurance cannot cover any more of his Three Stooges-like pratfalls. I have no control over that situation whatsoever. <laughs> I was about to say, if you've got any ideas, Bad Mike, on how we do that, we're love to. But well, I suppose we could deploy airbags or the the buttered cat array, or get him one of those little little toddler walkers, you know, that you no put no, down, no no put no 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 those big blow up hamster balls, one of those. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, Bad Mike finishes up by saying, we have the entire hotel next year, from Wednesday night through Sunday night, including all board and conference rooms. We'll need it for all the special guests Doug has overloaded on, if nothing else. (laughs) He doesn't understand a con does not have to have 10% of its attendees as special guests. Also, remember, discounted pre-registration through the end of July. Unlike DM Good Mike, I know how to plug my product. (laughs) Good times. Great to see you guys. And keep up the good work. Bad Mike. Thanks, Bad Mike, I think. (laughs) Um. (laughs) You were told by Bad Mike. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well... He's a, he, he sits on my shoulder in the little devil outfit. Yeah, you got served. Just not breakfast. <laughs> Forget topic. Talk Victorious up. And then there's the a little angel on your other shoulder. Says, like Liz. Topic. Talk Victorious up. It looks like Liz going, talk it up. And post more on the Facebook page. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. Well, All I right. say, you know, even though we did not get the tickets until Sunday, 
I, I'm pretty sure we were getting the actual con receipt you know, or the con price for the breakfasts. Just really odd because when we were there the first morning, you know, someone had asked about, you know, do you have a coupon? And I'm going, what the heck are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and then we get our coupons from the hotel with our bill on Sunday morning. It's like, oh, these are the coupons everyone was talking about. But yeah, I do think that they did give us the price with the, you know, with the badges on. I, it was just kind of amusing. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but we're with the convention. Okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. All right. Well, thanks for the emails, everybody. And if you want to write, where can you DM Jim? Hey, you can write us at saverdivepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Woo-hoo. Or you can send a voicemail to 940-536-3763. Catch me flat-footed so- twice in a row. You will not. <laughs> That'll learn me. All righty. Well, let's uh, take a break, and then we'll head right into talking about classes. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level elf barbarian mage assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Uh, yeah. Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master. Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey, guys. Can I play? Sure. Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool. I summoned a demon horde. The time when I reveal to you, my loyal followers, the key to creating hysteria, fear, God. DM Workshop. DM's Workshop. We are talking classes other than the standard classes the first major question that comes up here is have either of you created any classes either for you to play or that people could play in your games sort of i mentioned a billion episodes back i don't remember which one it was when we were talking about creating our own campaign worlds Mm -hmm. and I had mentioned how I had started but had never finished creating a campaign world that was based on David Eddings's Elenium series, you know, with the church knights and everything. Oh, yeah. Sparhawk um, and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the clerics in that particular campaign world, um, they would have been – like in the Elenium, they were the only magic-using um, p- 
people of the realm. So you, so I was not going to have magic users, you know, as a separate class at all. And every, every um, cleric, depending on which god that they were, or you know, that they were worshippers of, you know, they would have their own separate spells and it would include magic user spells but it would be it would be coming from their god rather than learning from a spell book so it was kind of my own version of the specialty class um i guess <laughs> yeah just to clarify for those who aren't readers of eddings that series kind of it was a fantasy world but he built these church knights on the various historical uh, knightly orders of the church, you know, the Knights Templar, the light, Knights Hospitaller, et cetera, et cetera, but had them actually able to use magic, which is just what the Templars were accused of <laughs> when, when the Inquisition got them. But they actually learned these spells and stuff and used them on behalf of the church. But So, yeah, so kind of a cleric magic user merge there. Right. Um, so... That's the that's the only class that I have created that was a quote unquote new kind of class, but I mean it wasn't exactly the same as the specialty clerics that you would find in second edition because I was basically I was giving them magic user spells to add to their repertoire based on, you know, what their sphere of influence was, you know, with their god or goddess. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it was. I guess in a way, it was kind of like a the the world would have been almost a dead opposite of Seven Voyages, you know, where you don't have clerics, but you uh, know, it's like well, magic users. yeah, it's like well, in this world, you don't have magic users, but you do have clerics. That the clerics can do some magic user stuff. It's just you know, it's coming from the god, um, mm-hmm. but you have those same spells. Anyway, Jim. Uh, I've done a lot of this just in the last year because I've been writing my own game and uh, got all into the you know precise mechanics of how to make sure everything balanced and the classes were done properly. Back in the day, we didn't do any of that. We just did what everybody did. We thought we could create our own character, and it was some overpowered twink character class that could easily wreck a whole campaign. Um, the I. As I was telling you off air, I mostly played because I was running Gamma World. I played D and D, but one of my first uh, dungeon masters, uh, the, like the second guy who ever introduced me to the game, was a guy named Perry Cooper, and he and I co-created a class called the Friar, and it was mostly uh, Perry uh, Perry's idea. He brought me in with uh, for illustrations and spell suggestions, and it was kind of a goofy thing. I don't know what it actually had to do with historical friars. I think that's just a name we decided we liked. They were kind of butch clerics that had a little bit more offensive spell arsenal in addition to the heels. Their two big spell, high-level spells were like a Jericho, a Jericho horn spell that had a chance of taking down gates and walls, and some spell, I forget what it was called, but it was a basically a way to enchant an arrow so it had a better chance to take out demons. Sort of a narrow bless spell going on. That's cool. All right, so that was your big class you could think of that you've made? Yeah, I mean, from, like, way back in 79. Yeah, um, I actually don't recall about making any back in those days. I think 
I always felt intimidated that, you know, I didn't know the secret formulas they used at TSR to perfectly make a proper class so that it worked in the game. (laughs) Hint, there wasn't one. Yeah, but when you're 12 or 13, you don't know that. That's right, and that's, that's vitally important. There, there were no precise formulas for cre- class creation until Frank Menser showed up, and then I guarantee you there was math involved. Yeah. Then, however, my players, especially one, we'll call him Todd. Hmm. Todd lived for the next issue of Dragon Magazine to come out. With a NPC class that he would rush over and demand he get a chance to play. Right on. And at the time, I, I would let him at least play it a couple of times. And that's how I got exposed to the Archer Ranger or the Bounty Hunter. All three of them. And the duelist which i actually put my foot down about the duelist when i read it i was like oh my god no 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 you cannot play that character so it it, it's dragon was was kind of actually a pain for me when i was up until i was about 17 or so when it came to their nbc classes well your your player todd (laughs) um (laughs) which i'm sure is a Totally and completely made up name. Absolutely. <laughs> um, did did you ever have to do anything to make Todd stop doing that to you? I suppose as a DM, I had to basically be very vigilant. You know, I would I would skim the class, and I would kind of depend on you know players to be honest about what their classes can and cannot do. And, you know, when it's, you know, in the book classes, I've got, you know, the Holmes book right there or whatever, and I know what's going on. But some of these classes, specifically since they were made for AD&D, were really crunchy, and I had to pay attention and note, okay, they do have some limitations that Todd seems (laughs) to keep forgetting about in the middle of play. And... So it actually it required more work on my end, but that's how I eventually broke from that. And I moved away from Mississippi, so you know that was the other thing. I seems a bit harsh. Well, <laughs> harsh. I mean, yeah. can, can we be honest for a second? I mean, when I was young and new to D and D, I think I had the same idea everybody did. This is cool because I would read it and it broke the system and allowed for some kind of power gaming advantage. The new class, whatever it was, class X. Yeah, yeah. Like an alchemist. Oh, I, my God. I can be throwing, you know, flasks of potions like grenades all over the place. Yay. Yeah. Caltrop-type vines popping up and everything. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's there's that phase, particularly for those of us teenage boys. I'm sure Liz never had this problem. Mm. But – yeah, there's the, you know, reading every bit to try to figure out if there's an edge you can get somewhere. Although usually as the DM, I was the one they were trying to get an edge against more often than not. But, yeah, um, I, there were those classes. I allowed the Encantatrix, the Archer Ranger, the Witch, the... I still allow the Strategic Review Ranger and Illusionist in my classic games. Um, I actually think the Illusionist is a little more versatile 
in the strategic review write-up than it was later in AD&D. Well, did this ever happen to you? We had this one guy in our group who all he knew was the Conan movies, and he wanted to play a barbarian. And there was some barbarian class that came out in one of the magazines. It might have been Dragon. And and he's on my brother. Let me play a barbarian. And my brother's rule was, unless it's in the official rule books, we don't play it. And then Unearth Arcana came out, and suddenly he went back to him like, aha, see, now you have to let me be a barbarian. That ever happened to you? Yeah, yeah. Because a lot um, of those classes popped up in Dragon first. Yeah, especially that, which thanks for bringing that up because that was one class that popped up there, the Thief Acrobat. <laughs> Nobody wanted to play. I was going to say, I've never, ever had anyone want to play the Thief Acrobat from Unearthed Arcana. What was her I name mean, yeah. in the cartoon? What was her name? Uh, Diana. There you go. She dressed like a barbarian, <laughs> but she was an acrobat. There was nothing wrong with her outfit. Of course there wasn't. <laughs> However. <laughs> the pink and lavender thief. Anyway. Uh, but, but, <laughs> is this yeah, going to turn know, into one that... of those conversations where we start talking about how Wilma Flintstone is the sexiest woman on earth? <laughs> <laughs> and how you'd go with Betty, but you'd be thinking, thinking of, of Wilma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the thief acrobat, that was kind of a specialty class that was quote-unquote official, and no one I know of ever wanted to play it. Or I don't think I've even run into anybody, you know, that I've, you know, personally met, you know, who has told me, yeah, I played a thief acrobat, and he was really cool, you know. I can't recall running into anyone who played a thief acrobat and didn't like it. Yeah, well... Um, not even Todd ever tried to play a thief acrobat. He thought they sucked. So I'm the dying, concept... I'm, what's Todd's real name? I'm dying to know now. Todd. Oh, okay. <laughs> Todd, short for Todd. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little slow here. Yeah. <laughs> now, you see, the first one I was saying with one D at the end, but his real name has two D's at the end. See, that was the difference. And on the off chance that Todd ever actually listens to this show, it's all in good fun. Yeah. Because Todd and Mike kind of sort of vaguely talk to one another a bit. Ish. 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 So, so, so ish. is Todd one of the guys back in the day you, you couldn't just look at and go, don't be a dick? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Ah, so. It was actually. <laughs> it was kind of hard since we were all gaming at his house, you know, half the time. But, but you know. Oh God, I remember those days where you had to be polite to the player whose mom's basement you were in because you couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't kill that guy. Because <laughs> otherwise, you you were banished. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I I never knew anybody wanted to play that. Um, it was a the concept was good. It was just the the way it was actually done was freaky. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea of a thief with acrobat skills is like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then the write-up, you know, the implementation was just, okay, this looks next to useless, actually. <laughs> well, I studied up a little for the show, and I found the most interesting article I'd completely forgotten about. There was a uh, Dragon's Foot uh, 
forum entry that lists all the classes that appeared in the early issues of Dragon Magazine. But then down at the bottom, they talked about some extra articles. And there was a Gary Gygax article in Dragon 65 where he basically throws out all the character classes he's thinking about putting into D&D before Unearth Arcana was written and published and ask for reader feedback. And it's really interesting to see the ones that made the cut and the ones that didn't. Yeah, wasn't there like a jester? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Rob uh, Kuntz had done the jester, and Gary like writes about how I haven't looked at that version or the other version. I'm going to create my own version. Uh, there was a subclass for everything. There was uh, clerics had the mystic subclass. There were two for thieves. One was the acrobat, but the other one was something called a Monty Bank. I just thought that was interesting to see Gary's yeah. thinking written in an article where he's kind of trotting it out. Yeah, if I remember correctly, and I may not, the Mountebank, wasn't that supposed to be kind of a thief illusionist or something? Yes, exactly. Subclass okay. specializes in deception, sleight of hand, persuasion, and a bit of illusion. Whatever, okay. Whatever that entails. A bit. A wee bit. A wee bit, yes. A gnome's worth. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, um, I also allowed uh, uh, the anti-paladin... Which I must also admit, when I was a teenager, I played a couple of times an anti-paladin. You played evil characters. I did. Me too. I did. For shame. Yep. It's true. I, I challenge anybody who was a teenager in the 1980s who played D&D that didn't play an evil character once. I did not. Well, I was normal. Any... GM. Teenage boy. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> my brother asked me to do it. He had an NPC, and my main magic user was off doing quest stuff, and he's like, why don't you play this guy for me? And I, I managed to play Andy Paladin and be really evil and not screw my own party over at the same time. Was it the Dragon Magazine anti-Paladin? Absolutely or it was. Oh, okay. So is he devilishly handsome or sinfully ugly? Uh, he was the ugly variety. Okay. Yeah, mine too. But I claimed he was half. He he was a half demon, so you know, no powers or anything. He was just born of a demon, so it gave him that really ugly mug. So did Lance, by the way, Liz. For shame! It's true. So see, we've uh, done the thing that the email wrote about. We've already slipped into the game on section where we're yeah. playing the classes. Well, I had figured at this point we were going to just ram everything together at this point, so... Ramming speed! Ramming speed! Ramming speed! What exactly, exactly. is ramming speed? <laughs> it's really fast-sounding. Um, <laughs> I will say, however, recently, as in the past five, ten years, I decided, first in AD&D, and then I imported them over for my classic game, I... I originally published it in Footprints e-magazine for Dragon's Foot, originally for AD&D, but I use them in Classic now. And that's basically I took the multi-class combinations allowed in AD&D and just made them classes. Yeah, and those are pretty much the alternative classes that I played <laughs> were those multi-classes as classes. Yeah, and I basically just ran them like, you know, the races class. Things in classic. 
That kind of happened in my brother's campaign because his campaign started with me getting him a copy of Holmes for Christmas that year. So his campaign started with Holmes and then went to AD&D. And, and one of his best friends in high school, a good friend of mine, uh, started out as an elf. And then he gets to AD&D and now he's got to be a fighter mage. And, you know, back then we just didn't make any big deal about it. They, My brother let him cast spells and swing a sword and he just sailed on. I can't, yeah. I can't remember anybody getting their panties in a wad about which way his experience points went every game. Mm-hmm. I don't think that really started hitting until Unearthed Arcana, and maybe not even until 2nd edition. Because, yeah, at the time, none of us gaming made a huge deal out of, you know, which book we used. We'd, you know, use Player's Handbook XP charts for, you know, Assassins and in our Holmes game or, or vice versa for the Brown Book. It was just all D&D. But, yeah, I have uh, stuff like the... Magic user thief, I, which I work into a sh- uh, charlatan class. Uh, fighter thief is a brigand, and I'll be honest, part of it is just plain laziness. I hate the idea of having multi classes, then each class moving at different rates. So I just turn them into one class. So you're like instead of a third level fighter, second level thief, you're a second level bandit, and that's it. You know, and you pretty much go up equating on each each uh, tier. Yeah, and that I, seems to have gone over fairly well. I think it's a lot more streamlined myself, you know, as a player playing it that way. Because you just have the one total and you don't have to deal with, I'm dividing my experience by two, you know, and then putting some here and some here and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's... In, or if you've got... got you're, doing re- twice, you're doing twice the math you know, the old way, and when it's all just lumped together into one, I mean, yeah, you still have to do the same amount of experience points, but, you know, you're not having to do the division and the two running tallies of points. It's just all, it's one, and there you go. (laughs) It was a weird thing back in the day where it was just whatever that particular DM said, that was his campaign, because I was trying to explain this to somebody last week, and I was uh, categorizing it as when old school was just school. I mean, DM, you know, Lonnie's campaign worked this way, and we all found out and knew that's how it worked, and Perry's campaign might be a completely different campaign thing. Like, uh, I was telling you guys off air, uh, Different Worlds magazines 1 and 2 had these classes called specialty mages, and it was just basically a fighter mage, and each uh, specialty mage was like a lightning mage or a fire spade. So he got lots fewer spells, but they were all be fire-based or earth-based or water-based or lightning-based, and I played a lightning mage, and I thought that was the coolest thing on earth because I got to have a sword and throw spells, and it was just a you know an elf-as-class character. Mm-hmm. It was no big deal, but I was just starting out. I didn't know any different. I thought it was great. And I knew that was a thing for, like, you know, Perry's campaign only. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you didn't, you didn't really, you know, I don't want to say you didn't bitch, but you, know, like, you, you, <laughs> did, you didn't complain about, well, so-and-so does it this way, and it's supposed to be this way. You know, it's like you expected everyone to have their own house rules. Well, and... Todd did. Well, <laughs> when it did not, when it was against what he wanted to do. I'm sure he was all for house rules when they yeah. were, you know, a benefit to him. Um, of course, the rest of us never behaved that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess mean, well, my point was there weren't addition 
wars or, or we never sat around and even considered race versus class because we were just it was all free flowing and footloose yeah or even when second edition first came out I know a lot of people who had no problem with taking things that they liked out of second edition and throwing them into their first edition campaign. And most of us were pretty cool with that. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, and or, you know, taking stuff from the Brown books and putting them into your Holmes campaign. You know, there, there was a lot more of, I guess, edition blending back then than there seems to be going on nowadays. That's a good term, and thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I've actually allowed more classes than people have played. For instance, as I was going to say earlier, I allowed the Encantatrix, but nobody ever played it. I thought it was kind of an interesting concept, but everybody's like, well, but you're just a magic user till you get to a higher level. And kind of a weenie one and at that so well okay run it or not <laughs> wait i'm just looking at the list i'm going what the hell is that one i never heard that one encantatrix dragon 90 what the hell is an encantatrix it's weird it, yeah it was i, a, I never wanted to play it <laughs> but it was a magic user specialty class just for us girls <laughs> it was yeah well yeah the character had to be female um their ability, the thing that made them stand out is at certain levels, they could, if they were fighting another magic user, they could take spells out of that magic user's head and use it against him. Okay. But to pay for that, quote unquote, it tended to, you know, she had less spell ability at lower levels. And some some limitations. Like a first level magic user isn't hard enough to get off the ground. <laughs> That's right. In You're a AD&D. first level incantatrix, and you can't even cast one spell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but hey, you got two hit points on your D four. <laughs> so between that and you know, it has to be a woman. I, I think that probably between those killed it at least you know until I was until my I and my gaming group was into our twenties and, and and actually met girls. <laughs> so yeah i mean i don't have a problem with it i mean i think you know and like you were saying as far as cam- i think that's the beauty of classic D, and i'm saying this without any real detailed reading of mincer or rules cyclopedia but part of what makes classics so cool in my opinion is that certain statements are left vague and it's up to the DM to make individual rulings for their campaign. And like you said, you know, you just kind of expected that. Well, this is how this works in so-and-so's campaign. I may go somewhere else, and it works differently. And you just know that's how they intended it because in the Brown books, uh, Eldritch Wizardry, when you were dealing with the artifacts, you basically had random powers. So you know, the Eye of Vecna in my game would have different powers than the one in Liz's game or in Jim's game or whoever's game. Well, I think Gary Gygax, there's always a very interesting tension there, especially in the old days, because he starts out in the Little Brown book saying these rules are just guidelines and you should create your own game because that's what they were doing themselves. But then, you know, like the guys on the West Coast and the Arduin trilogy guys all get fired up and suddenly he flips to where it becomes a very controlling, no, this is official, A, D, and D, and everything else is unofficial. Dungeon and 
yeah, Dungeon and Beavers, as he put it. Um, well, I guess you yeah, could take the fact like, of AD&D is the tournament rules. You know, yeah. Follow these rules when you are playing in tournaments, you know, John- because we have to have an even playing field. You can't have everybody's house rules come together in a tournament. Um, yeah. That would be how I would t- look at it. That's now, definitely sure- a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and John Peterson wrote in Playing at the World that uh, Gary was like that um, w- apparently with a lot of things, whether it was the use of D&D in fan scenes or information or adventure. It's like sometimes he would encourage people to do stuff and other times not. Um, I've always considered that there were two Gary Gygaxes, personally. I think there was Gary Gygax, the war gamer, the fan, the the fantasy RPGer. And then there was Gary Gygax, the head of TSR. And I think they frequently conflicted with each other. And sometimes maybe he didn't do the best job in the world, you know, for either or both. But, you know, let he who has never allowed ridiculous classes in their campaign cast the first stone. <laughs> well, that's that's what I just find interesting about it is the tension between those two sides and how uh, Gary and then even the company and, and even us all individually go back and forth and seesaw between those because I'm not the same kind of a DM now as I was when I was 18 and I've been through all those phases. Yeah, no, me me neither. Um, and a good thing too because I think I'm a better DM now but you know, I usually have to depend on Liz for that. Maybe she's just being nice to me. I, I think you're a fantastic DM. But hey, whatever works, right? So anyway, how many dragon classes did you ever use, Jim? Oh, well, as I explained, I, I didn't do much DMing back in the day. I was mostly right. playing. But uh, the uh, Andy Paladin is the only one I can think of. Uh, we wore the hell out, in, in that one DM's campaign, we wore the hell out of the specialty mages for years. And, th- and that was it. I mean... Th- I always was just happy with a magic user myself, so I wasn't personally one of the guys that was going to go out there and, you know, push the envelope. We always ran, you know, and grabbed Dragon Magazine and went, oh, isn't this cool? You know, there are five more colors of dragons now, but in actual gameplay, a lot of that stuff never happened. Yeah, that's that's well said, because I was you kind of verbalized what I was thinking there. Whenever, say, a Dragon Magazine or a third-party publisher would come out with something – People would try it, but inevitably they would just drift back to the main classes. Uh, Mayfair Games, in their reprint of City State of the Invincible Overlord with the box set, had little booklets in there where you could play more or less race as class. Centaurs, Lizardmen, Naga, and Leprechauns. And I allowed those for a while, but the only people... The only class that, or race class that anyone ever did really was Lizard Man and Centaur, and mostly Lizard Man. You know, and you what do re- they tend to be? Fighters. You just <laughs> reminded me, uh, one of my best friends played a Lizard Man character in my brother's campaign for decades, and I don't know where those rules came from. I don't think there were any rules. I think my brother just made it up and let him play a Lizard Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as long as it's like, well, okay, he's got the strength and half ogres. Would be another one I've I've allowed, but that basically was just like you know whatever you roll like plus two to strength minus two to intelligence, 
or minus two, one to intelligence and minus one to charisma, and that's the only rules, you know, go. I think he got a beefy hit die like D12 or something, but other than that, he was just a big, strong fighter. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> his his whole thing was to kick in the dungeon door and go, where are the white women? <laughs> Ow! Ow! Wow. I think you may have to beep yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like oh an come an- on, it's Blazing Saddles! <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I am laughing, but it's like, oh, as much as I like black Blazing Saddles, let's all be honest, that film could never be made today. Well, it was Ever. – I mean, there's not a racist bone in my body, but it was the 70s. That was funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, y- you want to go that – read the, some of the spells in, in the first Tunnels and Trolls. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. But yeah, um, Again, people I, – I don't know if it's that people try them for a while and think they're going to give some benefit and either the benefit isn't what they thought it was or the benefit comes with a baggage that they don't think is worthwhile or it just speaks to the power of iconic classes. Well, some, everybody. not most, but some of those uh, alternate character classes in Dragon Magazine were very well thought out and very well balanced. Yeah. Uh I would debate the duelist. On the other hand, uh, Nicola at, over at Ampersand Magazine has, has basically sent me an email saying, well, I played a duelist and it went just fine, so neener. Paraphrasing, of course. Yeah, she really said neener, neener. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want Jim to bleep me, though. So. <laughs> with, a, with a competent DM running things, anything would balance itself out, right? Potentially, but the problem is if you've got one player who's running a badass class, the DM can always throw stuff that will challenge that class no matter what. But then the what problem, happens to the it, other classes? Yeah, the normal guys everyone else is playing get chewed up and spit out on the way. And that's kind of what happened to my mage character in the last campaign that we were in with Chase because your fighter was such an unstoppable tank, especially after he got that plus five armor of etherealness. Plus five plate of etherealness. Yeah. It's like Chase was having to throw some incredibly horrible things that would even have a chance at, at hitting your character. But I only had a plus one sword. Oh, you only had a plus one sword. Well, remember we fought that demon? I had to yank its arm off and beat it to death? Yeah, you my did. My sword wasn't, wasn't plus enough yes. to beat Yes, you poor thing. <laughs> my mage, the monsters that would barely touch your character would do a one single blow to my mage and put her down to negative hit points in one uh, blow. I hate to take my side, but that's your fault for being there when the blow hits. (laughs) You've got a magic user shouldn't be anywhere in reach of that thing. This was a dragon, and I was very far away, and it did a breath weapon at me. Is that that purple dragon? It was a... It was a purple dragon or the black dragon that we were fighting something yeah you know so i was very far away and 
dragon just went and <laughs> yeah i think chase always regretted giving me that plate mail of plus five of etherealness if he had just told me to you know knock it down to just plus two plate or something i would have i wouldn't have cared yeah you say that now <laughs> <laughs> okay i would have griped you but gripe it. i gripe about proficiencies but i'm still playing in his game. i paid good money to buy that armor and now he's making me put it down to just plus two i went to magical walmart and everything that's right but anyway so yeah i i i, I another one i liked was the alchemist out of strategic review yeah um, that was a pretty cool class, and I think it worked fairly well. Um, I never had people play it enough for me to really, I guess, make an object, a truly objective opinion on it. But it just struck me as kind of a nifty class, and it would cover a niche where it's not just you're you're only a bargain basement mage or something, you know. It was. A, I thought I, we played it back in the day, and I think it was probably a little overpowered. But of course, we loved that. Really? Just Why would little. you say that? Oh, I mean, because that guy made uh, potions like they were uh, homebrew beer. Yeah, but classic, you know, most potions were like 100 gold pieces, and it was like, you know, per level. And it was like, you know, your average haul out of a dragon, or even just, you know, say a troll lair, you could buy a dozen of those anyway. I don't know. Maybe it was just because I was low level at the time, so I've got my three spells a day, and that guy was packing around a whole backpack of shit. Yeah, I will gr- – granted, I will say that uh, the alchemist comes front-loaded with a lot of stuff. Um, I think it ends up balancing out as he gets a higher level. It's less and less. I don't remember if it was that class or the scribe, but one of them had uh, the death curse, which I thought was really awesome and invaluable when dealing with my PC players. Basically, uh, if you're not aware of it, it's if you kill them, they have the ability to utter a death curse, and that acts as a like 12th level curse spell. I, and I love it was, for an NPC. Yeah, well, this was ideal because you know that most of them are like, well, we need a scr- a, a, a sage to um, come up with this stuff for us, and then when he does, we'll just gut him and not pay him. No, you won't. Yeah, I think it was the Sage class. Um, and that would have, I mean, again, not an NPC necessarily if you want to play one, but, you know, who's really going to want to play a Sage? I'm one in real life, and I don't, yeah, <laughs> that's hardly, you know, the the classes of which bardic tales are sung. Oh, yeah, but you get stuck on a desert island. You want a professor there. So you can get your radio batteries charged with coconuts. Woohoo! Ah, but I'm in the humanities. I'm not a useful professor. <laughs> I could tell you about the history of batteries, but... All right, well, is there anything else we want to throw on here, or should we hop on over to products? Let's do that review. All right, let's go on over. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the Cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier, and we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons game. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Poe ye. Under horns. 
that's what we're talking about today in Products of Your Imagination, in particular from Genius Loci Games. I like the, the name of his company already, <laughs> for you Dresden fans out there. Uh, so, according to um, RPG or Drive Through RPG, um, it's basically part of a series of his called Two Page Adventures. And this one is titled Under the Horn. So, um, if you like this one, he's got at least three others, I believe, that are basically pretty much the same format as this. And they're a buck each. PDF. All right. First, we'll start with format, layout, and illustrations for you guys. There was only five total pages, so I doubt there'll be a lot, but yeah, there's you really do have that. Mm-hmm. Huh? There's there's really not a lot. Yeah, there's <laughs> it's very bare bones. I was just gonna say there's five pages, but two of that's the OGL. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you've pretty much you've got the cover art and that's it, and you've got the maps. Uh, those are your only two pieces of art in in the product. It's an audacious you know, concept because the entire campaign setup for the module is part of the uh, body copy on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, reading it, it reminded me a lot of the adventures you would find in the back of the Dungeoneer, Judges Guild. Oh, yeah. Uh, You're right. Uh, it, it reminded me of that or the supplements, you know, like treasure maps or heroic fantasy where they'd give you like three or four little, little adventures. Um, this is something that could probably be played in one session, two tops, I think. Yeah, it's 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 very brief. Um, this particular one is, you know, just, you know, on the face of it, it's a standard dungeon crawl, and there's not a whole lot of encounter areas. And if you wanted to make it bigger, you know, you'd have to add on yourself. As it is, if you just need something real quick and dirty to drop into a campaign while you figure out what you're going to do to your players next, you know, this is a good one-off session. That you could, you know, have in there while you're putting together your next big adventure. Well, would you, you could... be willing to read the product blurb? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Under the Horn, a swords and wizardry compatible adventure for three to five players. In the ancient village of Coralius, built in the ruins of a lost empire, there has always been the Horn. Many have studied it, many have theorized about it, but no one has ever discovered its secrets. Recently in the night, the horn has begun to glow, and the apprentices of the Mage Academy have gone missing. Can the adventurers discover what happened to the apprentice mages and the secret of the horn? And the author is Joe DeSanto? Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure about the pronunciation of his first name, but it's Jahua DeSanto. Uh, Ah, Jahua. Okay, my... My synthesizer pronounced it Joe, but anyway. J-O-H-U-A. Okay. All right. Um, With cover art by DeviantArt uh, user U369, which is actually a nice little painting. Yeah. um, I went to the link, and on DeviantArt itself, um, the guy seems to have his name as... um, Oh, gosh. What was it? Dead Guy Beer? (laughs) (laughs) Memorable. Yeah, it, it, he's, yeah, he's got some good stuff, though. Um, so, yeah, if you if you get the supplement, definitely go to the link and take a look at the guy's other work. You Is say it straight across two column. 
Uh, it's a weird format. It's horizontal. Like to look, read it on my iPad. I had to lock the rotation. Yeah, it's like you if you took an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper and turned it sideways. Ah, so and, it sort of landscaped it. Yeah. Okay. It, as though it were designed for a tablet. Ah, which it probably was. This it's it's such an audacious idea, and uh, for the like the one page dungeon thing, it's very professionally laid out. It's it's uh, beautifully illustrated. It it's perfectly gorgeous looking for a buck. How wrong can you go? My problem with it is, it's like a, the little mini adventure that's at the end of the rule set, just to give you an example dungeon. There, I mean, there just wasn't much going on. Like that blurb made it sound really exciting, and I'm like, okay, cool. This one page dungeon, we're going to discover the secret of the horn and find out what happened to the mage apprentices. I read through the adventure. You get down there, and there aren't any mage apprentices, and you don't get to find out what the secret of the horn is. Except, you know, maybe the secret of the horn is it's a great place for the monsters to hang out underneath. Uh, did I miss something? Um, that was that was kind of you know my takeaway as well. Um, the Blurb on the cover gives you the impression, you know, the questions it asks. Usually when you ask on the cover of an adventure, you can pretty much be assured that those questions are going to be answered within the adventure itself. And in this case, it was not. Um, And yeah, like Jim said, it talks about the disappearance of apprentice mages, you know, going missing. And you never run into apprentice mages as prisoners in this dungeon. Now, you can, of course, add them yourself, but you, you know, just reading the cover without buying the product, you don't know that you have to add them yourself. You know, you're going to be under the impression that these little NPC characters are going to be found at some point. Um, I think it can still work as is if you tighten it up a little. Um, I will say, and this might be a bit of a spoiler, um, you do find some prisoners at one point, um, a bunch of children. Are these children supposed to be the apprentice mages, or are they not? You know, it sounds like they're a completely different group of prisoners, but they're they the only young. Yeah, but they're the only prisoners that you find. So. You know, a short sentence added to the description of the children. You know, something along the lines of, you recognize some of them as matching the description of the missing apprentices. You know, just they're wearing apprentice robes. You know, and that could easily clear that up if it's if the children are meant to be the apprentices. I don't want to sound like I'm being unnecessarily harsh. It's 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 very uh, nicely written and nice map. It's a good straight typical run through dungeon. Keep your group occupied of three or five players for an evening's play. You know, with just I just I, maybe I've gotten spoiled by Dungeon Call Classics. I wanted there to be a demon under that horn or an interdimensional gateway <laughs> or something. You know. Yeah, and. Like I said, I would not necessarily have a problem with that not being included, except those questions are specifically asked in the opening text on the cover. And so if you're looking at the product without buying it, and you're reading, you know, can the adventurers discover what happened to the apprentice mages, you know, you are under the impression that when you buy the adventure, you will find out what happened to the apprentice mages. And you don't, unless those children are the apprentice mages. And like I said, you could just add in a sentence into the description of the children to let the 
you know, to let you know as you're reading through it, okay, those are the apprentice mages. That question has been answered. This is um, this is kind of weird because I think I'm not going to be the hard ass on this one. Um, I, I I have no problem with a DM needing to flesh out something, but you know, I feel like if something is specifically stated on the cover, that is something that is going to be dealt with when you open up the adventure itself. And well, you know my campaign world. I don't do mage academies anyway. Mm-hmm. Everything is individual apprentices to individual mages. There's no school or graduation program. There's no Hogwarts. <laughs> so I guess when I read that, it just kind of went out of my head going, well, I'd throw that out anyway. Just make it kidnapping of kids. So, you know, the denouement, as it were, didn't really jar me and... I like the fact that it's bare bones so I can add stuff to it. I can see how if you read the blurb on the cover, you you were like, you know, where are the apprentices? That could bug you, definitely. It didn't bug me, though, but that's because I probably went in with a preconceived idea of what I was going to do with this thing anyway. Fair enough. So, anything else? Or do you want to dragon it? Um, Let's go ahead and dragon it. Let's dragon it. We'll start with Jim. Um, hmm. I'm give it about a two and a half. I mean, you can't go wrong for a dollar. I, I now that okay. I know there's a series of them, I want to look at a couple more just to see if uh, it's part of some longer story, maybe or something. Okay, Liz. Uh, I'd give it a middle of the road three. Um, like I said, I think there are instances where you know, with just the addition of maybe an extra sentence or two here and there, you know, things could be a little more clear and yet you're not, you're not railroading the thing, you know, just, you know, if there is a connection between the mages and the children, you know, just drop that in there, make it a little more clear for the person reading through the adventure before they run it. Um, So, but, you know, that being said, you know, it's a good little placeholder adventure, and I'd say, you know, for a dollar, the map, the maps alone for the cavern system are worth that, you know, and it's a bargain. So, you know, you you cannot go wrong. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's I mean, a two-page adventure. You you can't get your coffee <laughs> at McDonald's for under a dollar. Okay, I'm gonna go. Oddly enough, three point five. I liked it. Um, for a buck, yeah, it's like Jim said, it's kind of hard to go wrong. I like the bare bonesness of it all. Um, this is something I think I could throw in, even if I could just ignore the whole children thing. If I just needed a lair encounter, you know, near the near the river mm-hmm. or a big lake, here you go, and you just happen to find kidnapped kids. Um, I know the there, you know, people have some worry about the blurb, but I. It just doesn't chew on me as much. Maybe because I didn't see the cover. but <laughs> Which gives us an average of three. For a $1 product, that's a good good grade. Yeah, definitely worth so. it. We'll probably be reviewing at least a couple of more of these as episodes go on. So we'll be able to see how this, this series comes out. And Genius Loci Games. I love that name. All right. Well, I guess that means we're at the end of the episode yet again. It didn't go two down. hours. Yay. <laughs> Woohoo! 
It's a miracle. Well, with all the audio problems we were having at the beginning, maybe it did. But <laughs> we're going to chop out a lot of that. So we, Jim, is going to chop out a lot of that. So how are how is Jim heading up? Uh, I'm heading down the road with my uh, Necromicron. I'm under that giant horn trying to see if I can't summon up some Elder God. I mean, you got a perfectly good horn there, right? You ought to have something there. Liz? I'm heading down the road with my horde of specialty clerics who do magic user <laughs> spells. And, um, yep, that, that's pretty much how I'm going. I, I got my cadre, my posse. Looking for apprentice mages? Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I am running down the road trying to avoid all three different bounty hunter classes that were in the same article in Dragon. Talk about a headache. And that wraps up episode 95. We'll see you guys on the other side for episode 96. See ya! Bye-bye. Briark. And we're out.